This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Tamara. So this week, I want to talk to you about a story that hasn't really been dominating headlines, but it's one that we've been thinking about for a while. If you're someone who follows international politics, it starts out like a story you may have heard many times before about an international push for regime change. It starts four years ago when Juan Guaido declared himself the interim president of Venezuela. This was right after an election in 2018. Longtime president Nicolas Maduro had been declared the winner, but the opposition disputed the results, and internationally, they were widely seen as illegitimate. And this was all happening in the midst of a crippling economic and humanitarian crisis. One by one, Western governments, led by the U.S., backed Guaido's claim. He was heralded as this hero who could end the suffering of the Venezuelan people. He even got a standing ovation from members of Congress and Washington during the State of the Union address in 2020. He's a very brave man who carries with him the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of all Venezuelans. Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Mr. President, please take this message back to your International media flocked to Venezuela to profile his rise. He's only 35 years old, but for those who dream of seeing President Nicolás Maduro go, Guaidó is the yes-we-can man. Many, in fact, are comparing his looks and his style with Barack Obama. The Maduro government called Guaidó's move to seize power a foreign-backed attempt at a coup. So that was in 2019. Jump to a couple of weeks ago, Guaido showed up in Miami, all alone at the airport with nothing but a backpack. He said he was hoping to take part in an international summit happening in Bogota about the crisis in Venezuela. But Colombian officials didn't exactly roll out a red carpet for him. When he arrived in Colombia, Guaido said the government there forced him to leave. That's when he got on a plane to Miami. In a tweet, he said, quote, Guaido's story is one of an international push for regime change gone wrong. He's now out of the country. The EU, US, and Canada have all stopped recognizing him as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. And last week, his own party replaced him as their leader. Meanwhile, Nicolas Maduro is still the president of Venezuela. ¿Dónde está la rata de Juan Guaidó? La rata de Juan Guaidó. 
So what exactly happened to Juan Guaido? And what does his departure mean for the future of Venezuela? My guest is Jose Luis Granado Ceja. He's a writer and podcaster for Venezuela Analysis. It's an independent website dedicated to giving voice to leftist and grassroots movements in the country. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and this is Nothing is Foreign. Jose, hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be able to talk to you about this issue. So, Jose, when Juan Guaido declared himself president, how exactly did he try to seize power? Yeah, it was an extraordinary day for those of us who follow Venezuelan politics. You know, the morning of, we heard that this person who was relatively unknown inside of Venezuela, and certainly outside of Venezuela, had declared himself president, interim president to be more specific. Now, this was based on a very curious particular reading of the Venezuelan constitution, basically that says that in the event that there is a vacancy in the presidency, that the power obviously needs to be transferred to an authority in order to make sure that somebody is the president. Now, the thing is, is that he and his allies deliberately read the constitution in this way as a means of securing regime change. So mm. they argued that the 2018 election, which saw Nicolas Maduro reelected to a six-year term, was illegitimate. And therefore, his inauguration subsequent was illegitimate, making the presidency therefore vacant. Uh, the actual constitution specifies that in the event that this does happen, that there has to be uh, new elections. So just for a bit of context about this election, Guaido and his supporters weren't alone in saying it was illegitimate. It was also condemned internationally. There were allegations of vote buying, electoral fraud, voter turnout was really low, and Maduro had banned some members of the opposition from running. President Maduro said those parties that boycotted the municipal elections were no longer part of the political landscape. The parties that did not participate today, that boycotted the elections, cannot participate anymore. That's the criteria laid out legally by the Constituent Assembly. And as the head of state, I support that. But Maduro defended the results, saying the system was secure and told other countries like Canada to stop meddling. So this was very fraught. And that is the climate in which Juan Guaido, a virtually unheard of 35-year-old former student leader, entered the stage and declared himself Venezuela's interim president. So he's a young figure from the Venezuelan opposition. In particular, he represents Voluntad Popular, or Popular Will. It's the party of Leopoldo López, another well-known opposition figure inside Venezuela. And like I said, he wasn't really that well-known. He was just a, a figure who was seen as charismatic, but I think more importantly, was absent kind of the grime of the other opposition leaders. You know, Venezuelan politics is full of longtime actors who are well-known to Venezuelans, but because of, by virtue of that fact, are also somewhat uncomfortable with the Venezuelan population that doesn't exactly view them as a good alternative to the socialist or to Nicolás Maduro. Mm. And so the strategy was this young guy, charismatic, and obviously has received some kind of training in media and communications that he would assume this, this, the role of interim president by virtue of being the head of the parliament at the time. Yeah. And 
What kind of support did he have within Venezuela at the time that he made this declaration? I think certainly at the time he made his declarations, there was an outpouring of support from the people who sympathize with the opposition. We have to recognize that Venezuela is a very polarized society. Uh, despite the very difficult situation that the country is going through as a result of the economic crisis and U.S. and Canadian sanctions, there is still a very firm base of support for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. And now on the other hand, you have the opposition, which does also have a core base of support. And they were able to successfully get a lot of people out into the streets to, to show that they agreed with this strategy. But that started to wane actually very, very quickly. You know, it is a party that has taken positions that are not popular. And so because the moment passed, you know, that sort of where it seemed like this strategy was going to play out, eventually people came to see that it wasn't. And he turned into a, a person who wasn't leading mass rallies, but was instead holding really small demonstrations, press conferences with a handful of people. This move by Guaido was very bold, but it was backed by the U.S., Canada, dozens of other countries. They all came out and they recognized him as the legitimate president. We are moving forward on recognizing Juan Guaido, who is the president of the National Assembly, as the interim president so we can move towards free and fair elections. Now, this all seems... So how exactly did they justify that? What we saw was countries deciding to interpret the Venezuelan constitution according to their own dictates and according to their own domestic and foreign policy interests and not actually justifying to the rest of the world, merely actually forming part of what seemed to me a, a deliberate campaign to try to give this impression to the international community that there was a global consensus around this. And therefore, Venezuela actually doesn't have a president right now because Maduro is not the president of Venezuela in the eyes of the world and also in the eyes of Venezuelans. This is about us saying the Venezuelans' own constitution calls for a situation in which, because there is no legitimate president, they need to call elections and it is the president of the National Assembly who needs to step up and call those elections. Now. So all these countries, they saw this election that had just happened as fraudulent, but these declarations of support and the way that they rallied around Guaido, that didn't happen out of nowhere, right? That was months in the making. Yeah, there was actually a really interesting piece from AP right after he declared himself president. Uh, they called it an exclusive where they were able to get people to tell them, uh, on the, on, on the record, although they didn't name their sources, that they actually this strategy of recognizing Juan Guaido came together after weeks of secret diplomacy uh, between the opposition activists inside Venezuela, but also with actors inside Washington and obviously the embassies throughout Latin America. And so it, it was clear that it was part of a strategy. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know anything about Hugo Chavez or Maduro, can you just briefly explain sort of the positioning of the Maduro government at the time? Like, what was that government's relationship with all of these countries that came out against him in the aftermath of that election? Uh, when you have a key commodity like oil, you end up having a disproportionate sized role on the international scene. And so 
countries were very much aggrieved by the fact that Venezuela, under the leadership of Hugo Chavez and then his successor, decided to use that oil wealth for themselves as opposed to sweetheart deals with the rest of the world. And that made them uncomfortable. And so that's why they sought regime change. Obviously, also the government took very strong positions against some of the decisions historically made by some of these governments. Hugo Chavez was a huge critic of the so-called war on terror led by the US, you know, criticizing George Bush and, and his successors quite, quite firmly, quite directly. Directly. It's what we call anti-imperialism to say that we that these governments reject the imperialism of the United States and its allies. And of course, that also doesn't sit well with with these governments who are you know not too keen on being criticized in international forums. But obviously, domestically, he was very, very popular. What was the hope or end game here? What were Guaido and his international allies hoping would happen? I think they were hoping for a very sharp break with the previous regime and a radical change in terms of the country's domestic and foreign policy. The problem is, is that because of that same polarization that I mentioned earlier, there is not a lot of love between the two sides. I think there was a widespread expectation both between the opposition supporters, Juan Guaido, his party, and their allies abroad, that things were going to happen quickly. That as soon as he declared himself president, there would maybe be some moments there where it was in dispute, but that eventually the armed forces would come along, the population would turn out into the streets, and that this regime change effort would be consolidated. What did Guaido and his supporters do to try and unseat Maduro? What kind of tactics did they use? We saw this insurrectionary strategy using violent tactics on the streets. On the streets of Caracas, chaos. Anti-government demonstrators taking on police and government troops in what's being called the final phase of efforts to topple Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. You know, there was a terrible incident uh, where a black man was accused of being Chavista and burned by people who were participating in these street blockades. You know, they're, they're subsequent to his declaration of being the interim government. You know, we saw on April 30th, a coup attempt, a call for the armed forces to uh, disobey the constitution and disobey the president and join the coup attempt. Today, as the legitimate president of Venezuela, as the legitimate commander in chief of the armed forces, I am calling on soldiers and the military to join us, keeping within the framework of the Constitution, as we always have. There was the mercenary strategy where figures very close to the interim government, Juan Guaido denies it, but, you know, there are pages with his signature on it, you know, where they entered an agreement with a mercenary outfit to try to invade Venezuela and kidnap the president. So a lot of these actions uh, are far from democratic, despite the fact that this opposition is often billed as the democratic opposition. So obviously none of those things worked and Maduro is still very much in power. Guaido is now in the United States. Where did things go wrong for him? What happened between 2019 and now that stopped his plans from becoming reality? I think they underestimated the loyalty of the armed forces. You know, there's a long tradition of military coups throughout Latin America, and there was a deliberate effort 
by the leadership of the government and the armed forces to try to train the rank and file troops not to participate in coup efforts, a deliberate mm -hmm. strategy to, to kind of change the military doctrine inside of the country. And also an underestimation of the support that exists for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela inside the country. I think that's historically been the case with the opposition inside Venezuela, thinking that because they operate in a certain echo chamber that they have widespread support. And the truth is they don't, right? Venezuela went through a very profound transformation, a revolutionary transformation. And I think people are still remember that that this is a government that really tried to deliver on all of the commitments that was made, right? That we were talking about the Hugo Chavez presidency, where there was massive investments in infrastructure and in health and social programs, you know, an effort to uh, increase literacy in the country, to bring in doctors from Cuba. The list goes on and on in terms of of what the Bolivarian Revolution, as it's called, was able to deliver to the population. And I don't think they were willing to just simply walk away from that legacy. And, you know, they were, they were willing to say, no, we reject this means of changing the government. Right. In January of this year, Venezuela's opposition voted to dissolve this parallel legislature that they had running alongside Maduro's government. Since then, the U.S. and Canada have both said that they no longer recognize Guaido as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. But this kind of distancing from countries that had previously supported Guaido and his quote-unquote interim government, that had been happening even before then, right? Other countries had been doing this for a while. So what was driving that shift, do you think? I think there was an expectation that the transition was going to happen quickly, that Guaido would, would declare himself president, that these countries would line up behind him, that the whole edifice would start to, around Maduro would start to collapse and he would be able to secure authority inside of the country. So that never <laughs> happened. And it's, it was an untenable situation to begin with. You know, if you claim to recognize a figure that has no actual authority in the country, what do you do when you actually have to engage with the country itself? And we saw that happen, right? With the outbreak of the conflict in Ukraine, suddenly there was interest on behalf of the U.S. to have face-to-face -face meetings, high-ranking meetings between the U.S. government and the government of Nicolás Maduro. The latest round of negotiations resulted in a signed agreement which seeks to resolve the crisis in Venezuela through free and fair elections and to ease crippling economic sanctions on the country. In response, the United States also announced that part of the agreement will include limited term licenses for Chevron to resume oil extraction operations in Venezuela, a move that's seen as strategically important for the West as tightening sanctions on Russia have caused uncertainty over international oil prices. And so this difficult situation, you know, proved to be untenable and they had to kind of shift gears. We first saw it with the European Union, which started calling him an opposition leader as opposed to interim president. Then we saw, you know, the sort of the softening around the language. There was a vote at the UN General Assembly about who actually represented Venezuela, one that was overwhelmingly won by the forces of the government of Nicolás Maduro. It was, it was untenable and they had to adapt to what was going on. Mm. And right now he's in Washington. He's meeting with all these political leaders and he says he's not going to seek asylum, that he plans to go back to Venezuela. But 
what would be next for him as a political figure in Venezuela? I think if in Venezuela, he would likely be as marginalized as he was before he left, right? He's, he's somebody who seems to really kind of bask in being in the in the center of attention. I think the fact that, you know, the, the 2015 parliament revoked his status as interim president, you know, it didn't sit too well with him. So he went to where he would be feted. And we've seen through, throughout the last week of Juan Guaido being received by various think tanks and politicians and, and, and the like and being celebrated. You know, we have to remember he was applauded. He received a standing ovation inside Congress mm-hmm. during the State of the Union speech, right? Uh, but in Venezuela, he would be just another opposition figure, one that isn't particularly par- popular within his, his own political party. So I think the story of Juan Guaido largely ends here. I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. Many Venezuelans blame sanctions for their economic woes, and they've been eased a bit, but progress has been slow. The Maduro government is still largely blocked from accessing Venezuela's funds abroad, although last week Bloomberg reported that the U.S. released around $350 million in frozen funds to the opposition, which has been using the money to finance its operations. Right now, there is also about $2 billion worth of Venezuelan gold being held by the Bank of England. There's been an ongoing battle over who should have access to it. This is money that Andrena Chavez says could have helped people on the ground. Andrena is a colleague of Jose's based in Caracas. Yeah, I think mostly, it, I mean, with, when, when you think about the Venezuelan gold in the Bank of England, and you think about the fact that we were living through an economic crisis and we needed to have access to that gold so we could buy food, so we could buy medicine, so we could buy vaccines even during the pandemic. So that is something that the interim government really blocked for Venezuela and because we couldn't use it because the United the, the UK thought that it wasn't clear who was the president of Venezuela, if it was Nicolas Maduro or Juan Guaido. So because they were apparently confused about that, they decided that nobody could access the money. So that goal remains frozen. And that is, I could say, something that it is truly the responsibility of the interior government. That's, that is the way they they disrupt the Venezuelan economy. That is the way they disrupt the Venezuelan uh, efforts to recover because they block access to resources that we desperately need But while many Venezuelans are frustrated by the impact of sanctions that have been supported by Guaido's interim government, Andrena says there is also a lot of frustration with the government in power. We come from almost seven years 
living in a recession, living an economic crisis, living a migration crisis. Our healthcare system is still really in a in a really difficult situation because well, we don't have enough equipment, we don't have enough medicines, we don't have enough personnel to attend the people. We have schools that are without teachers, basically, because a lot of people have migrated. Or we have teachers decide not to go to, to school because the, the wages are so low that they, they just say, why am I going to go to work every day if, if my wages can barely support my family? It can barely be enough for me to pay for transport. So, yeah, I mean, people have real issues with the government because they think that more can be done to fix these problems. The minimum wage here in Venezuela is truly, absolutely, it is worth absolutely nothing. So it is truly frustrating to see that no real measures are being taken when it comes to rescuing people's wages, when it comes to rescuing social benefits. And although people understand that we are under a blockade, that we are under US sanctions, and that the economic situation is really not easy, We also understand that there's a lot of corruption. We also understand that there's a lot of mismanagement. So we see all that and we realize that definitely there are different priorities in the government than there should be. Nicolas Maduro's government has also been criticized for its human rights record. A UN report from last year said that the highest levels of government had used torture and sexual violence to repress dissent. Jose says there are ongoing investigations of these abuses. There has been very much a strategy of the government to try to contend with with a very belligerent, violent opposition. Uh, and yes, you know, we have seen documented cases of abuses by state security forces in demonstrations. The authorities brutally suppressed the uprising, even running over protesters with an armored truck. More than 50 people have been injured. You know, I think it would be wrong to say that these things don't take place. Now, we know the Venezuelan government is presently facing a inquiry at the International Criminal Court regarding these alleged widespread human rights abuses. You know, they opened up an office for the prosecutor, Karim Khan, to be able to work closely with Venezuelan officials to try to make the changes necessary to make sure that there's no impunity for, you know, figures within the state security forces that were accused of, you know, excessive use of force are held accountable that it faced justice. So for for anyone who has followed Latin American politics over the last century, the story looks really familiar in terms of the U.S. backing an attempt to overthrow a socialist government, except this time, unlike other times in the past, this strategy didn't work. Why do you think that is? Like, what was it? What was different this time around? I think history plays a long role in this. I think people understand that the, the U.S. and its allies have always been willing to go through whatever means necessary to try to achieve its foreign policy outcomes. And I think what we've seen is a generalized sense throughout the region that they don't want to tolerate this. There was a really interesting interview that Maduro gave uh, a couple months ago with an Argentine radio station. And he said that if this strategy had served to change the government of Venezuela, we probably would have seen it repeated throughout the region, right? 
for as much as officials inside of the White House, and I'm thinking Juan Gonzalez, the national security advisor, for example, claim that they'll work with anybody who's a democratic actor, that as long as you're democratically elected, this, this administration will work with you. Fundamentally, the mindset at the State Department has not changed, right? It is a kind of Monroe Doctrine style thinking that everything that happens in this hemisphere must abide by the dictates of policymakers in Washington. And people who break out of that, out of that mold uh, face the consequences. And there's a very generalized unease with that, right? Like this is a very rich region of the world, but it's also the region with the greatest inequality, right? It doesn't have to be this way. And it's not fair that every time that there's an effort to try to elect somebody who do things a little bit differently, all the threats of intervention come raining down. And that's true of Mexico, it's true of Colombia, and it's true of Venezuela. So now Venezuela is surrounded by leftist leaders in a way that it wasn't four years ago. We have Petro in Colombia, Lula in Brazil, and we're seeing other countries normalizing relations with the Maduro regime. What do you think all of these things mean for Venezuela moving forward? In particular with Venezuela and its neighbors, this is really good news, right? Because it's not just the diplomatic isolation that happened, but it was an economic one. The border with Colombia, major trading partner of Venezuela, was closed for a really long time, right? Venezuela was not going to be engaged in economic relations with this country that was backing Juan Guaido inside of the country. That change helped really renew relationships with the country. Uh, you know, we've seen Gustavo Petro travel to Venezuela. They've met at the border. New agreements are being signed. That's opening up a little bit of breathing room in, in economic terms for the country. Likewise, Brazil, it's the giant of South America. It's a huge country in terms of its diplomatic and economic weight in the region. They too are now seeking to rebuild relationships, rebuild economic relationships in particular with Venezuela. I think that's really, really good news. And I think it's important because they see it as, as a signal to the United States, which is to say that we will decide amongst ourselves who we relate with. Jose, thanks so much for this. Um, really, really interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I was able to talk about this. And I hope that out of this, we can have more people paying attention to the situation in Venezuela that will produce positive outcomes for the people of Venezuela. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.